to America, Mao, and the Metaverse. The Pauls are here. Paul, I'm in Chicago. Paul's got his Christmas tree in the background from Barcelona. And Paul, you've had a very busy week or a couple of weeks. We finished off our conversation last week saying that you're about to start a two-day seminar about Money Metaverse and about the book and about a slew of, the, uh, about a slew, a slew of different things. For those of you who don't know, Paul is a regular contributor at Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, and this was a a two-day event, Paul, that you were that you were embarking on. Talk a little bit yeah, about it was, that. Uh, it was Thursday, Friday, and we had about uh, we had several hundred people who attended the seminar, and it, uh, I called in some pretty uh, big people who are big in the universe of this. No affiliation whatsoever. First of all, Michael Sung is at Fudan University. He's one of these people with a PhD from computer science at MIT, so he knows of what he speaks, and he is a chairman of Carbon Blue. He's involved in a lot of different ventures. Ying Lan Tan, former partner at Sequoia, and now he's got his own uh, private equity company in Singapore, so he's very plugged into this. And of course, David Lee, who is Mr. You know, Blockchain in Singapore, and then uh, Taiyang Zhang, who made a fortune at the age of 24 with something called Republic Protocol, Rencoin, which is essentially a, a crypto community of individuals around the world who are capable of, of trading cryptocurrency among each other one of the first to be able to do that. Here is the highlights of really bright people. Now, look, if I came at this, I finished this book two months ago, and then you have to go through this horrible process of editing and cleaning. And then it came out in e-version, and then it came out in hard copy last week. So it's available on Amazon. It's Money Metaverse. We had Michael, who I've not spoken to in many months, out of Shanghai, David out of Singapore. And all these guys are along the same lines. And Paul, let me give you the veins so sort of the major arteries of the argument for what people see in front of them. And people are going to have to stop poo-pooing this and laughing at it and thinking it's absurd. It is not absurd. Because one of the great numbers I heard, in 2000, internet as a percent of GDP was zero, basically, right? In 2020, it's 40, right? The internet economy is 40% of GDP. It's very conceivable that the metaverse could equally equal that in no time flat. Why is the metaverse so attractive? It does not involve regulation. It's low margin asset line. We get rid of trusted, all these trusted third parties. In that sense, it's very deflationary for middlemen, accounting, banks, law firms, all that crap. If those guys don't get on to get on the, 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 the bandwagon, no clearinghouse, no settlement, all this crap you and I were living in for 25 years. So essentially, the metaverse is a world which is the same thing as Web 3.0. Web 3.0, metaverse, same thing. There's no difference, right? And so one of the great phrases that, that I heard was essentially uh, Web 1.0 was ingesting uh, data. Web 2.0 was creating the content. Uh, Web 3.0 is living in the content. It's creating a content of a new economy through gaming. One, two, and three, that's the big difference. Why this is happening now? It's happening now because technology has been laid down. Artificial intelligence, we understand it better. Blockchain has now been rolled out. And now we have crypto. It's been rolled out. It's been universalized. There are 75 million people using it. And then DeFi is, is very rapidly rolling out. And the ABCD of those creates the foundation for the metaverse. 
NFTs are a location in the universe that happens to be a blockchain-based location that shows I provably own this piece of property. So, so it is the fundamental establishment of property rights in the metaverse. It is ownership. Me participating in Facebook Horizon or Facebook Meta, I'm renting. I'm a renter. I'm a squatter on Facebook's land. If I, am, I have an NFT, I'm an owner. We all know what happens. Owners get rich. Renters don't. That's what the last like 2,000 years has told us, right? We have and, and another really great point that was made by, I believe it was Michael in Shanghai. We have a very low digit growth in the physical world. We're looking at, you know, two, three percent going forward. We have a, a disinflationary low digit growth. In the metaverse, we are looking at 50 percent growth for a sustainable. But, that, but, but that's off the current low base. So let's be let's be clear. There's you know, and again, I'm not discounting what you're saying for a second. That, but it works. Those numbers are misleading. Of course, Paul, but you want to go to the place where there's high growth off a low base. That's where you want to be. What's the metaverse already have? It already has millions, tens of millions of gamers all over the world. And they're in places, and this was a highlight of one of the really interesting panels I heard at, at, uh, at the Milken conference. These are, many of these people are in countries that are, that are essentially failed states. They are people who are victims of, I love this phrase, I've never heard it before, economic violence. All these countries, and smart, smart people, Russia, Ukraine, Venezuela, Brazil, you know, Philippines, Colombia, all through the Middle East. The whole Middle East is in flames uh, thanks to the war on terror. And so there are tens of millions of people who are turning to the metaverse to try to get an equal chance at making a living. And it's happening right now. People are making 30, 50, 100 bucks a day on gaming and, and competitions and all kinds of of, of economic activity. So this is not to be dismissed. Now, Ying Lantan, who has his fingers in a lot of pies in ASEAN, he does a lot of ASEAN um, investing for his insignia. And he said, look, I can tell you right now in what I'm doing today, we are seeing the metaverse slowly emerging right about now in microsurgery, gaming, mental health therapy, doctor's offices, tourism, language, law, diagnostics, and social network. Come on, right? This is all happening in front of our eyes. So this is something that we just simply can't afford to miss out. Companies that were being highlighted, Axie Infinity was one of the ones that was being highlighted as really one to watch, Roblox as well. And of course, in our portfolio to my clients this last week, we had a, a portfolio that we ourselves have, have created. And, and there were so many people in, in the group who basically were, okay, so what do I do? How do I, how do I figure this out, right? And so the, the best advice I can give everybody listening right now is Solana. Go on Solana, look at Phantom, and spend some money. This is tuition money. Spend a couple of hundred dollars. Go in, make money, lose money. It's tuition. Uh, MetaMask, Avalanche. These are things you can go in, play around, buy something. Buy, buy an NFT for $20, right? The way you started to make money in Asia in stocks in the early 90s was you had to buy something. You had to buy them. You had to learn that all the stocks in Asia were numbers. They weren't letters, right? But it's interesting the way you, you phrased that. And you used, I think, a very good, the, the phrase of rent versus own, and like, I think is very telling. And if you look at, at Roblox and these and these and these sort of companies that are allowing ownership within their metaverse, right? When you're talking, I just wrote down FB 
feudal metaverse. And if you think, and this is why I think that, and we've talked about this a lot since we've started this, about how Facebook or how Meta will evolve in this. And we've had constructive conversations. We've had destructive conversations about them. Mm-hmm. But, again, if you think about that they're, that they have a feudal ownership of their metaverse, i.e. you are a renter in their world, right? Correct. How is that sustainable, right? How is that, how is that sustainable when you can go to when you go into Roblox or use or go into Phantom and the like, and these are communities that will. This is a metaverse that will organically grow to a place that you know we cannot control because it's all going to be user owned throughout the process. And I just can't see what value proposition go, like outside of the next couple of years when this is in its infancy, right? what advantage Meta or Facebook has in a feudal-style metaverse where you have to be a renter versus these other, these other frameworks where, you, uh, where it's all community-owned? That's a good question, Paul. I, I, th- I think that the answer is, why do we have so many people who rent properties who are, are, are married couples with kids and they've been renting for 20 years and they stay essentially in the same city and they have a fairly stable double income and a pension? That's just the dumbest thing you can do, right? And, but we have millions of people who do that all the time. And I think part of it is ignorance. Part of it is I don't want to have the hassle. Part of it is I can't afford, I couldn't save enough capital. But I think in the case of Meta, Meta already has 2 billion renters right now. Are you kidding me? Paul, look at what's been going on with, uh, and I told, I said to a class like six years ago, I said, anybody who's on Facebook and you're not getting paid for your data, you're out of your mind. These people have been squatting in squalor because they've been paying, they've been essentially right paying with their time, and they have been giving every single scratch of their data on everything about them to Facebook for free. This is the biggest ripoff in the history of, of, of value because every dollar of market cap was stolen from the users of Facebook, yep. right? It was, a, it was the greatest transfer of wealth in the history of the world. And the 2 billion users who were squatters for the last 15 years, I say shame on them. But nobody wants to listen. Hey, it's fun. What are you talking about? I'm in a community. I feel like I belong. I get my news there. I have my business there. Shut up. And that's what I get for pointing out that they're squatters. Obviously, we look at on America Mountain, the metaverse, we're looking at this through a sort of a great power competition between the US and China. So looking at both US and China and obviously overlaying the metaverse on top of this. Talk a little bit about the future, or where, sorry, the state of the metaverse in China today. And the well, yeah. met, let's get big picture and talk about how does the metaverse contradict or align with the priorities of the Communist Party? I think that's a good question. I, I think we had a long discussion about that in private. It's too sensitive to bring up in a big group of like 400. Sure. It, was, no, sure. the whole, it was about 400 people. In private, with just anonymous anonymous numbers. First of all, I think that what we have seen with with Alibaba and Tencent in China has been an essential stealth nationalization of data. We have had a 60-style nationalization of data. I think my very good source in China is like, bam, that's exactly it. We talk about it quietly, but that's something China has chosen to do. Now, when you transfer, right, Remember the, the, the cover of The Economist magazine 10 years ago, you know, data is the new oil, and it was data, you know, coming out of the, the, uh, the, the, the ocean derricks, right, the ocean oil wells. 
so essentially all the value, right, that, that uh, Alibaba and Tencent had in their data, right, was transferred to the, essentially the People's Bank of China. And that is something that Jack Ma probably accelerated. He, he did himself great disservice, but it was probably something that was going to happen anyway. One of the insights I got from one of the people who is uh, one is, is a senior person in Binance, which has like 80% market share, and it's essentially Chinese-owned. You can argue about it or not. But he was pretty public at a closed-door China-focused forum that I attended in Singapore. And he said, look, at, we think of, of governments like Hong Kong, where you and I live forever, and uh, many other countries. They fund their government revenue on the sale of land. Other governments fund their, their, their government on the sale of oil. He said, I, I conceive of a time when um, governments are going to fund themselves with the sale of data and data exchanges. Now, pay attention to the Shenzhen data exchange. I don't know how that's going to work, but China is saying maybe we want to fund ourselves a little bit more with the sale of data. I think in America, they're going to have to go down a route at some point in the next five or seven years of breaking up. I, I imagine at some point in the next five or seven years, Facebook will be broken up somehow like AT&T was. And, and, and it's going to be uh, interesting to see how they're going to regulate it, right? But that will take a long, long time, right? So I think you're really on to something here because China is taking a view that the, the effect on teens is unsustainable. The monopoly effect is unsustainable. The uh, antitrust effect is unsustainable, and they're breaking it up. And I think Europe is is in second, doing very similar things. They're 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 severely restricting the access to data of all these American companies for European consumers. Every time I open up anything in in Spain, I get twenty five questions about do you want your data to go to these people. And then America's in dead last with some sort of attempt at regulation. And I don't think Biden can go down this road. It's, the Congress is too close. It's too 50-50. And he has no support for breaking up Facebook or Google or Amazon or Apple. And all four of those are absolutely unequivocal monopolies. <laughs> yes, yeah, so right. true. Mate, something which you'll appreciate. I've just, um, I'm about two chapters away from finishing Ai Weiwei's autobiography, which is hands down one of the most beautiful books I've read in such a, such a long time. And for those of you who don't know, Ai Weiwei is, is China's probably most famous dissident artist, and he was an early adopter of blogging in China back in 2000, 2004 when this was all sort of coming to the fore. And I can only imagine after reading this book what, what someone with his mindset would think about the metaverse and trying to restrict the metaverse. Because, you know, this, let's face it, the metaverse is going to be a haven for creativity, you know, for be it for artists or for anyone, you know, look at again, look at just straight and what the rise of you know art in terms of NFTs and the like. It's it's simply remarkable. And I I can only imagine what Weiwei would say about China trying to restrict the metaverse and the like, and 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 he would probably compare in many ways a company like Facebook to the party in terms of its ways of its restricting restricting what we can do. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think, though, I was listening to a couple of podcasts today on this, and, and there was one American, and of course, everybody was crapping all over him on, on Twitterverse. But he was saying, look, what's happening now is all, all the teens across China are looking at their, their metaverse and, and, and their internet, and they are getting 
uh, uh, interspersed education, learning, engineering, you know, uh, math, sciences, art. And then they're, they're taking, do you want a five second break? We're giving you a five second break, right? We're going to stop for five seconds and let you clear your head. And then we're going to continue on. And they're having more control over that. Now, that's a little bit like when you and I were growing up in the 70s, that was what America was like, was reading, writing, arithmetic, get, get, get in line, do the Pledge of Allegiance, shut your mouth, uh, yes, no, march to the playground to raise the American flag. <laughs> that, that was us in the 70s, man. And, and it was like you get smacked if you ever talk back to a teacher and, and all that jazz. And that's kind of what, like, th that's what countries that have mojo have that weirdness of get in line march in this direction. And China's got that mojo. America had that mojo in the 60s and 70s, right? And then it just all went haywire. And so uh, I would say that what we are seeing is a world also very importantly that at 10 o'clock at night to six o'clock in the morning, it's turned off, right? And so what happens to, to teenagers now is that they, they, they need to be up until two o'clock in the morning because they need to respond to somebody who's trashing them or or plotting them or, or you know, talking about them. I, I need to be up to respond. And so I can't go to bed until two o'clock in the morning. If you shut everything down from 10 o'clock to six o'clock in the morning, people sleep. Guess what? Teens sleep. And so I think there's something going on that we need to appreciate and not crap all over that speaks to sort of totalitarian lunacy and is something that is an attempt to restrict data access, right? To restrict trashy, like garbagey nonsense, causing teens suicidal. Again, and that's and that's the quandary here, right? Because again, I, I often joke that if if the, my 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 son, my fourteen year old, calls what's going on in China a human rights abuse against teenage boys, right? <laughs> so so he thinks the whole thing's just 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 a fucking a, a disgraceful, right? But if you were to bring that measure here to the United States. Oh, Are there yeah. 50, million, yeah. 50 million parents who think that would be pretty awesome? So I think a lot of parents are quite like that. There would be a giant rebellion uh, among uh, everybody else. Yeah, there probably yeah, would be like 20 parents would love it. Look, there's so much, there's so much to despise about the Chinese Communist Party, right, <laughs> in every shape or form. But at the end of the day, you, know, you understand the process of why a society wants to limit gaming as a pursuit right now now i will make an argument that i you know i, I look at my own 14 year old son who is so much more creative because of his gaming right and what he does he's he's become this really creative this really creative person that manifests itself in in art and in music and all sorts of different and all sorts of different things but at its core is his gaming community right and that is is his that is his life that is his metaverse is he happy? Is he a happy person? He's very happy, right? He's very happy. Yeah, he's incredibly happy, right? And the irony, Paul, the irony is that they don't, a lot of, a lot of like particularly boys of his age, they don't do any other social media, right? The only social media they use, the only thing they use is Discord, and that's really just to chat with each other, right? But they, he's not on, he's, he has no, he's not on, not on Snapchat, he's not on Snap, he's not on Instagram, he's not on any of that stuff, right? I think it's a bigger problem for girls, teenage girls, we've talked about that in the past. But look, it's a, it's a it's a real quandary because again, you know, we we have to ask the question: Is China going to be a better society, however we define that, if you limit kids' access to playing video games, or if you don't put as much, if you you limit their forcing them to go into hours of private tutoring and stuff like that? All these extremes that sort of evolve. 
Is China going to be better for it going forward? I don't know the answer to that, but it's very easy to make the argument that, you know what, China in in 20 years' time is going to be better for the fact that their kids are limited in the amount of video games they can play. I think if you talk to like Roger McNamee, right, who introduced Zuckerberg to Sheryl Sandberg, and he was Zuckerberg's first mentor, and Francis Huygen, who uh, not only worked at Facebook, but she worked at three other companies before that as the person who was responsible for the social network stuff. And what they are advocating that Congress do is exactly what China is doing right now. Uh, China's doing two things. It's restricting time allowed on, on, the, uh, on the internet. Number two, it is slowing, slowing down the algorithm. It has a five-second you know, circuit breaker, right? And so your, your, your algorithm breaks. And then thirdly, it is basically re- reducing the number of groups and the access of various groups to, to data. And that's exactly, I'm telling you, that's exactly what Frances Huygen, when she was at the Web Summit in Lisbon, talking to the editor of the FT in front of 35,000 people, what she said Congress needs to do. Uh, question from the FT guy, uh, is this going to happen? She says, no, I'm very pessimistic. I think Congress, is, there's too many ignorant people in these committees, and they probably will never get here. And, and, they're all, and anyway, they're all paid off, right, by Facebook. And Roger McNamee is, you know, his book, he was the writer who wrote the book Zuck and, and yeah. in 2015. And he thinks that Zuckerberg has created a poisonous uh, uh, monster that is wrecking society. Call it, the, call it the criminal enterprise. Yeah, right. And so, so gee, I wonder if you know some. If you if you if you erase the name China and put and put like, I don't know, like uh, like a midsize, like like Switzerland or or a, a nice people, a country people like Korea, right? People would say, "Wow, I kind of like that. That's interesting. Let's talk about that." But right now, it is so okra to just crap all over China. And you would not believe that the commentary after this video of this guy who was like saying, hey, we need to think about this. He's being called a communist and, and a traitor and, you know, a, you know and all this jazz. And so I think that the, the, uh, the, 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 the argument on one side or the other of China versus the U.S. and what you and I have been talking about and will continue to talk about ends up being just a, a toxic mess. It's just a toxic swamp of negativity because nothing that China can do is good and everything America you know, does is good, right? America can do no bad. China well, can do no bad. I think it's a, very, it's a very valid point. I think, you know, I give, give this one example, a couple of examples in terms of the views of, of international investors towards tech regulation in China, right? So, so ten, Tencent Music gets fined $50 million for an acquisition it made back in 2016 that gave it 80% share in Chinese streaming, right? So fine $50 million for anti-monopolistic behaviour. Stock's down 17% that day. On the same day, Amazon's fined 950 million euros by the EU Commission and the share price doesn't budge, right? Meituan gets fined for not paying its drivers minimum wage, which is how is that any different to what California and London did to Uber? There is a massive double standard here. And again, and I'm not defending, and you, I know knowing you as well as I do, you're not defending the party in any way, shape or form. But it is more nuanced than this that says that regulation by the West is good, regulation by China is bad, right? And it is much more yes. nuanced than that. 
Well, yes. However, I think that, you know, that was all part of a narrative, which I think part of it is legitimate, a narrative of the education companies and the transportation companies in New York that were slaughtered. And I think the whole DDIPO has been a, 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 a PR catastrophe for China to, to basically trash the stock price a week after the IPO when everybody knew about it. And so the underwriters, by the way, FYI, knew all about it. And, and none of them have been punished. And then, of course, you just saw the other day that DD is basically going to be delisted. And, and this is really, really bad. It's well, a shit shit shit. And, again, yeah. and again, I think, yeah, look, the underwriters knew. DD management, DD management tried to sneak it. Look, they, they snuck this. They tried to sneak it through during Chinese New Year. No, no, sorry, through the through the 100th anniversary week, the, 100, the week of the 100th anniversary. Right? right. So they tried to sneak it through under the radar and, and it got it done, and, and then when the party, when everyone came back from the from the centen- centennial uh, celebration, they turned around and said, "What just happened?" Right, and that's look. And Didi's a little different because I don't think Didi was able to go public. It got rejected by Hong Kong, so it couldn't list there. And like all these companies, particularly the all the VCs that have been have are stuck in the stuck in Amp Group and ByteDance and uh, who can't go public now, the Western VCs pushed Didi to go public. Uber pushed them to go public. SoftBank pushed them to go public, right? And they stuck it right. through. And it was a, and they did it in a really sort of in a very sloppy way. And it's coming and back. To as usual, they wanted to cash out, and, and the public. And so I'm, I'm, I've been very pessimistic on all of this because the private equity companies are behaving so selfishly that they're just leaving. They aren't even leaving crumbs for the for the the public equity market. They're leaving nothing, and that's why you're seeing like 50 percent of IPOs this year are underwater because yeah. of the by private equity companies who are just leaving. They're not even leaving anything. They're leaving negative value for uh, public equity investors. And so there's just a big turnoff here. And that has a cascading effect. Why? Because the, the listed companies themselves are also invested in similar types of projects and similar types of investment. And so what happens is there's a circular uh, flow through where suddenly all the stuff that the listed companies are paying for isn't worth as much of what's happening with the IPOs. And so, so, so everybody is, is, you're getting into a, I think an unpleasant, potentially a, a little whirlpool going down the drain if you don't start to arrest the uh, value destruction of greedy PE who list overvalued things which collapse. And then having that stain go onto the values of publicly listed equities who can end oh, up well, with put that in, sorry to interrupt put that into context Kathy Kathy Woods ETF today is down just uh, it's down five and a half percent and it's t- not quite taken out the year to date low but we're not we're not far away from that and just this thing's down this thing's down 50 this thing's down 50 percent from the February high right I know. And, that, and that's all, and that's everything you're talking about all these clowns on Twitter for the last like three months were all like you know blabbing about Kathy Wood's portfolio and saying this is all you need to own for the next you know decade and for your kids' tuition and don't worry about it. This is a sure bet. Everybody that. No, I can't I can't say, but mate, this thing has just been absolutely fucking trounced. Yeah. And I think all that's gonna flow through to a lot of other of these investments as well. But the money metaverse portfolio that we have has companies that are doing some really fascinating things that are different from the kind of Kathy Woods companies that, that she has. And her, her uh, portfolio is a, a 100 miles away from the metaverse. Her portfolio is very 2019, right? And so I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan. I've never been a fan. I, I don't know what the whole like um, 
the whole love affair with her is. I don't get it. So, right. I, I, so we've seen the uh, the Paul Schulte money metaverse ETF coming on the horizon anytime soon, sir. Uh, I think I think we're going to have to we're going to start seeing two things. We're going to start seeing uh, metaverse ETFs, and we're going to start seeing quantum computing ETFs. I think that's going to be the new thing in the next uh, twelve months. I, I agree with you. I think that's right. So can we look? Look, we're up against time. We have other things we want to talk about, but that was this was much more interesting. Can we talk a little bit about quantum computing next week? Yeah, and so yeah. so what's happening now in, in, in the late like in the last like twelve weeks, you've seen a lot of movement where where you know where a, uh, uh, Cambridge Quantum Computing has you know had a big merger uh, you know, in the U.S. and Rigetti is its IPO is pending probably in the next uh, four to eight weeks. And so Rigetti will become a, a very large company. Uh, Cambridge Quantum Computing uh, will be a um, pretty major player and they're uh, forming uh, themselves. And then, of course, you've seen Peter Thiel's uh, Palantir get involved in quantum computing as well. And there's a lot more progress, not just in the software side, but also in the hardware side. And we're seeing progress. But don't forget, slowing down an atom, an atom, by the way, A-T-O-M, <laughs> right, uh, to minus, you know, 452 degrees, you know, Celsius, right, 452, sorry, Fahrenheit, absolute zero, right? right? You're slowing down uh, an atom to absolute zero, and then you're doing code on the electrons running around the atom. It's remarkable. It's just incredible. All right. Let's talk about that next week. Great to see you. Let's do it again next week. Yep. Good stuff. Okay.